Well, welcome back, everybody, to the final episode of season one of Sheep Stuff You Should Know. I'm Ryan Mahoney, broadcasting from a sunny California and Rio Vista, California. And today I got normal co-host from up I in Auburn. I wouldn't go that far. I, I, I'm the co-host. I'm far from normal. <laughs> well, we raise sheep. That's a, that's a given. <laughs> I'm Dan Macon up here in the Sierra foothills where it's also sunny and blue skied today. Yeah. So how's everything? I mean, it's sunny, blue skies. That's a positive, but there's also some negative implications with that sunny sky. There, there definitely are this time of year. So I, before we start, I got to know what wool are you wearing today? Mm, wool. I got, I got my normal wool base layer. Okay. And uh, that's it. Nothing else is the normal wool base layer. So I'm, I'm promoting. But you top. are, you are wearing pants, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. Denim. Yeah, okay. I'm promoting the cotton industry today. <laughs> so I got I, I'm working in my my frigid office, home office. So I've got a wool vest and a wool base layer and wool socks today. I did order a bunch of uh I've ordered some hats, some beanies, and scarves and little gloves for Christmas gifts from our uh Imperial Yarn. Oh, partner awesome. on our wool. So I got that stuff ordered up today. So I didn't, I'm not wearing it, but I am supporting it today. Awesome. Very so. cool. I've, <clears throat> I am supporting wool with my Christmas giving this year too. Yeah. So. I'm also supporting yeah. the beef market, beef industry and the lamb industry. So <laughs> doing both, but yeah. Yeah. So what, uh, what, what do you got planned? The holidays are coming up. Everything good all yeah. ready for the holidays and before, Pretty be... quiet, but yeah, we're going to go. Uh, the Forest Service, for the first time since we've lived here, is offering Christmas tree cutting permits close to home. So we're going to go up above Forest Hill on Saturday and venture into the, the great white north, although it probably won't be white, probably won't be any snow. Yeah. Um, and get our tree and just kind of a quiet holiday. How about you guys? Well, that'll be nice. I got to get my tree still. And I always get my tree because we have a fake tree, but I always got to get a real tree because one of my favorite parts of Christmas is about the third or fourth. I like to take my Christmas tree and take it out to the ranch and set it on fire. <laughs> and we have yep. a big last couple of years. We've had a Christmas tree burning kind of party thing where we'd go out to the ranch and we'd get a couple of friends and we'd put the trees in a pile and kind of have some have some leg of lamb or something and just share a little friendship and time it's a pretty fun deal and we call our annual christmas tree burning party or we, christmas tree we disposal do that similar and i usually take one of last year's calendars and put it on the fire too <laughs> that's a good addition i will <laughs> definitely do that this year that'll be good all right on well let's uh we'll just jump into the topic today because it's top of mind for for me and i'm sure for you too so absolutely absolutely so i i guess my first question for you ryan is what has fall been like there is it what what are you seeing down there in rio vista yeah so i mean every year it's different and um i i still stick by you know where we we got a we got a three percent chance of hitting normal Every rainfall every year according to the last hundred years of rainfall data but uh this year we're we're and it seems like three of the last four years we've kind of had a, a, a non a contra seasonal kind of kind of fall 
typical fall will get a little rain in October, November, and it'll get a little grass going. And then you go into the winter with a bit of green feed. This year uh, is is kind of like last year and also kind of like 2017 where we have no green feed. Yeah. Um, we got one rainstorm, got a little bit of the ranch with some feed going. Um, it's up a little bit, still green today, but the majority of the hills are just completely bare and dry. And we're buying in hay from Nevada and just trying to keep things going, moving things around. We didn't buy any stalker animals for our irrigated pasture. We're holding that back. And we got some pears on the irrigated pasture. We normally don't do that. Um, Cow-calf pears. Okay. And um, yeah, it's it's we are in full drought mode right now. And we still haven't got our FSA drought payment from the spring. <laughs> you know, we we drove, um, did, did the drive from Auburn to Bozeman in one day a couple of weeks ago. And um, it's pretty dry all the way across Nevada, as, as you might expect, but even through Southern and Eastern Idaho and up into Montana. And I think one of the, the things that always strikes me when I travel out of state this time of year is that California typically has kind of this winter green up that, that none of the Rocky Mountain states or Great Basin states have. And we don't have that this year. We had, we had a little more rain than you did in November. Um, and so under the old feed, you know, we've got maybe a couple of inches of new green coming out, but it's, it's kind of like the old Miller Lite commercial. It tastes great, but not enough to fill a sheep's belly. Um, so on, on that, does that feed, um, when you get that little bit established and then you stress the heck out of it with drought and not a lot of rain, but just enough soil moisture to keep it alive, does that make a stronger spring feed? You know, I think I think that's one of the differences about our annual grassland systems as opposed to the perennial systems in other places. It's strong feed right now. There's just not much to it. And by strong, I mean there's not a lot of water content to it. So the nutrient value is a little more concentrated. That will change as we get rain. So we could we could have now a normal or above normal January, February, March, and that feed by the by March would be washy. Mm -hmm. even though it had a strong start it's it's really a factor of the the water content and the forage and that's the other benefit of these annual systems you know we get a little bit of rain at the right time even in a dry year we're going to grow some grass yeah um, when's too late hmm. if we got rain in the next 10 days is it too late and what what are kind of some of those things that make it late yeah, so I, I don't, I'm not going to be upset if we get rain in the next 10 days. <laughs> no one will. <laughs> <laughs> that said, you know, we're going to, we get to a point and it's probably a little different up here than it is down where you are, but we get to a point around the winter solstice when we don't have enough sunlight hours to grow grass, even if we've got moisture. And we've actually been a little colder this year than we have the last couple of years. And I think the soil temperatures and the air temperatures are such that even if we got moisture now in the second half of December, it's going to keep that grass alive. It's just not going to grow much. Yeah. And it wouldn't be growing much now regardless, I think. Yeah, there seems to be like a, I don't know, to me, I, I kind of look at it in our area that once you get past really the 15th of December, 
then you're just waiting for the first of April or 15th of March, you know, first April. Yeah. And um, we'll always get some moisture and that spring is always going to have some feed. Yeah. But uh, what, like all the rain that we get from now till that first of April is just going to go and sit in the soil and keep it wet. And if you have north wind come behind, it'll pull it out. If you right. get some good frosts and, you know, and it just kind of stays mild weather, then you'll end up, you know, being able to just retain that soil moisture. You know, what's so interesting about, about all this variability that we seem to have had the last couple of years. I was looking at my weather records from last year and we got three hundredths of an inch of rain in February of 2020, driest February on record. The season end forage measurement at the Sierra Foothill Research Station just north of us was within five pounds of their long-term average. So we had a February like that that was, that was record dry, and yet we still ultimately grew kind of what we would expect to see in terms of feed volume. I think the challenge is it all probably came in about 25 days, right? Mm -hmm. So you had this really short window. So we had, I think it was in our area this, this year, we were extremely short of feed. We, we, yeah. um, a lot of the rainstorms that came in in the spring really missed our County. Yeah. And with that, um, we dried up and browned it. You know, the feed got Brown in uh, May where typically we'd stay green till June first, you know, even sometimes even close into July. But, um, but the, it was like, I think it was 2012. We had, uh, we had a real dry fall all the way into the fall and we fed hay from, you know, 2013. August, yeah. 13. So from August, yeah. August, um, 15th, basically all the way up until March 15th, we were feeding hay to everything. And then we had a tremendous March rain and really good growing season. And we ended up the, the drought monitor that we used to kind of say whether it was a drought or not. And the feed measurements, the feed was normal. But the problem was, is we grew it all in one time and yeah. had, we ended up having this huge additional expense to our operation because yep. we had to supplement feed for, you know, for a huge chunk of that winter. Yep. And uh, yep. it was pretty expensive. Our sheep were in Rio Vista from around the 1st of October, 2013 through Valentine's Day mm -hmm. 2014. And this year feels a lot like that year did. Um, just in terms of, of the forage conditions here at home. Yeah. It's scary. It, is there any positive from the lack of rain this time of year in your operation? No. <laughs> 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 I'd say, no, I mean, I, I think when you when you when you're in agriculture, so much of what you're doing is uh is dependent on the your your, your value of your ranch is in the natural resources that God gives you basically. And when they're short, you're short. When they're long, you're long. And that's the gamble of, of working in this business. And um, you do things to hedge against it. But at the end of the day, um, you, it's really difficult to have clear positives. Um, there are some external opportunities because I do believe that when you look at something from a, you know, a drought or a situation like this, you always need to look at it as an opportunity to improve something. So, um, that drought of 13, um, we took that as a huge opportunity to improve the genetics and really jump our genetics forward in our cow herd. So we did that through strategic culling 
and um, got control of some things and, and really improved the quality of our livestock through our selection of how do we destock effectively and increase the efficiency of those animals. And um, it was incredibly successful, and I, I felt it really, really benefited us. Um, we can do the same thing this year with with um, with the sheep, uh, the cows. We don't quite have the same upward ceiling opportunity that we had in 13 because mm-hmm. of what we did in 13. Um, so we're going to have to, if we're going to liquidate some livestock, we're going to have to liquidate some pretty good livestock. And, right, um, right. So it just, it really, yeah, it depends on, there's opportunities. There's opportunities everywhere um, in some form, but at the end of the day, drought hurts your bottom line because it hurts your overall production. You know, I want to go back to something you said at, at the start to that answer too, because I, I find it interesting and instructive. Um, I was talking to a, a mandarin grower up here last week, and they're in the middle of their mandarin harvest. And one of the, the challenges for mandarins in the foothills is if they get wind and rain, the shelf life of their crop really diminishes. So he's he's ecstatic about the dry weather right now. But what that suggests to me is that those of us that are, are dependent on rangeland agriculture, that are grazing cattle or grazing sheep, particularly I think here in California, always feel the effect of a drought before our, our farming friends even know it's, it's coming. You know, it's, the, the impacts on the mandarin crop may be lack of spring rain or lack of irrigation water if we don't get snow. Um, but we're dealing with it right now. And I think that's, that's always been kind of interesting to me that, that we're on the kind of on the forefront of having to cope with drought when it comes to the agriculture in California. Yeah. Yeah. I can, I could agree with that. I, I, I think maybe I, I'd maybe take a little different angle where I'd say more that, that drought affects different commodities differently. And depending on what commodities you're running, um, you have different drought, you know, whatever you call it, um, risks. Yeah. So like cherries would be a good example. The way the rainfall comes in the spring is make or break on the cherries. Yeah. And I've, I've heard around here that cherries, you know, you'll, you'll make money nine of 10 years or you'll make money one out of every 10 years, but that 10 year will pay for 20 years of farming. <laughs> Something like, like it's, it's that kind yeah. of a situation yeah. and it's all hitting the, the rainfall and the drought and the sunlight and all of those things lining up right. And when they line up, the crop is absolutely unbelievable. Yeah. And um, a lot of times it doesn't work out. And so that would be a real high risk. And I I think that's also one of the reasons why farming is so successful in the Valley of California is because they have a lot less rainfall and a lot more controlled water with quality soils. And so they're able to control a lot of those external factors. Right. Right. Um, whereas the more north you get or the more hilly you get, you're much more at risk of, um, of mother nature. I mean, there's right. never no risk of mother nature, but. And there's a flip side to that too, right? You were saying that, that the best feed you get is what would grow in the hills without you having to do much to make it grow. Yeah. And so that, that's the upside of the systems that we're working in too. Yeah, absolutely. The good years are great years. Yeah. 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 What about what, you? Are, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, what about you? Same question to you. You know, is there any positives to a drought for Dan no. Macon and flying mule farms? No. Yeah. No, it sucks. Yeah. It sucks. I, I read a paper, a, a academic paper about drought in Australia that said 
ranchers there admitted to looking at their phone weather apps 20 and 30 times a day. <laughs> I do <Yeah>. that. <laughs> Got to find one that has a positive forecast. Yeah. So yeah. I started that and I, I do that. And then I decided that I needed to delete, I needed to delete, uh, you know, my phone. I needed to get rid of my social media for a, a, a couple of weeks to kind of make sure I, I keep my anxiety in check. And then now I'm also realizing I also need to delete my weather apps at the same time. <laughs> they, they carry the same level of anxiety as the social media. So, <laughs> I may follow in your footsteps. Negative, <laughs> negative news right there. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So I mean, you... back, back to, I mean, really, I'm curious on, on Australia. So Australia has huge sheep numbers and low cattle numbers in proportion. And then mm -hmm. America has high cattle numbers and less sheep numbers. And I've always thought that the reason Australia has been so long on sheep is that they are traditionally more drought susceptible. The, the country is more drought susceptible than the U.S. And sheep handle drought better than cattle. They maintain their productivity on poorer feed stuffs than cattle do. And I'm curious, what do you think about that? I think that's part of it. I think that's part of it. Do you think, you know, I maybe relate a story and then ask this question. Um, I did a, a research project on drought impacts after the, after the 2013 drought. And um, one of the stories that I heard was from a fellow sheep producer, a guy both you and I know, who said, was talking about their own operation. Then he, he related this story where some friends from Australia, the whole family, like eight of them, showed up on this guy's doorstep one morning. And, and he said, what are you guys doing here? And, and the guy said, well, it's, it's drought. And so our response to drought is to sell all the sheep. We'll get back in the sheep business later. And we're going to use this opportunity to come visit other people and learn how you do things here. So I, I wonder if there's a different kind of connection with owning sheep versus owning cattle that makes those adjustments easier, perhaps. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I know that like, I, I know for me um, that when you have the drought, the big feed liabilities and the big costs that add up are going to be supplementing nutrition into the cows. Yeah. Like you take yep. your per, per sheep unit and I can put them on some pretty sparse ground and feed them, you know, I, I don't know the body weight percentages or anything like that, but feed them a little hay yeah, and they get by. Yeah. The cattle, I got to pile the hay to them. I, I, that's an excellent point. You know, one of the things we're doing right now is feeding hay every other day just to get protein in the sheep so they can <laughs> eat the dry feed. We're feeding hay every day and a lot of it to the cows. I, I, we, and then yeah. around, around Dixon, Rio Vista area, there is no local hay available. Anybody yeah, yeah. with hay is sitting on their stacks and uh, we had to buy, we bought some hay. We had to get it out of Nevada, trucked in and I mean, you know, the next step from that's going to be pulling it out of Utah, <laughs> which should just really be hurting. Is that a function of, of kind of where you are in the production cycle for the cows too, in terms of their reproductive status? Yeah, that? that's a big part of it. But then I think it's just also that daily nutritional demand of the cow. And then it's yeah. the cow's ability to forage. Like sheep, yeah. I think are much, they're, they're able to get into little areas and pick up little pieces of nutrition places. Whereas a cow the cow can't lick the dirt and pick up feed. 
pick the sheep up the old can, fillery that's yeah. Yeah, the sheep can kind of dig through a little bit and pick up some seed heads and stuff that yeah. the cows can't get to. And so I think the sheep can maintain better on that shorter feed stuff, whereas the cows they really need they need volume of feed to fill that rumen to keep them functioning. Yep. And um, so that I think that's a big part of it is and whenever Kurt, he said that on our podcast, when you start supplementing, you're losing money because, you yep. know, you buy in and you buy in feed stuff that costs you um, two dollars on the gain to feed and you're getting a dollar twenty or a dollar, yeah. whatever it is. So you're losing every single pound you're putting on through that supplementation. I, I had somebody ask us one day we were building fence to move the sheep and, and the guy said, well, why don't you just throw them hay? So being a recovering ag economist, I went through and ran the numbers. And um, I would rather invest an hour or so building fence than, you know, an hour or so every day throwing hay out that I had to buy and, and haul to the sheep. Yeah. yeah. And, and there's think, a there's a difference in supplementing nutritional requirements and supplementing straight up yeah. Daily nutritional needs. It's it's supplementation versus substitution. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. I'd say in the hills now we're full fledged substituting hay for or feed for the cows. The sheep we're still able to move stuff around and get stuff done, but any any differences in stock water for the cows versus the sheep or how you handle that? Uh, the demand for water is way higher in cows. Yeah. The, yeah. And so that you just have to have bigger tanks, bigger systems and haul a little more water when you have to haul it. We never you want to what? haul water to the cows. We don't care. I mean, we don't care. We don't like hauling water as a principle, but we don't have a problem hauling water to sheep. Hauling water to cows is a bad thing. Yeah, right. Right. And that that really came out of those drought interviews I did too. Yeah. That the people who had sheep or that had sheep and cows were kind of prepared to be able to haul water and the guys that just had cows that only had stock ponds or or seasonal creeks they had whole ranches that they couldn't use during the drought because they just had no water for the cattle they might have had forage but they had no stock yeah. water I, that's one thing i think is huge is water development on your ranches yeah. i mean if we didn't have and we have we're, we're right on the river we have different springs we have different ponds things like that but um, if we don't, if we have a ranch and don't have a well on it, we're actively working to develop one because it yeah. just that makes your ranch function and it helps hedge against the droughts and things. And when you actually do the math of what it takes and costs to haul water to a cow, every you know, make sure their water need is supplemented. It, it's it adds up really quick. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, do you have any kind of key dates? in a situation like this where you've told yourself if we don't have rain by this date we need to make some decisions you look at it that way yeah um you put that question on the list you gave me and and um that made me think that i do need to write them down um we have the general date so i'd say december 15th if we don't get any rain by december 15th then we're gonna move substantial amount of pairs to our irrigated pasture and definitely not stock those fields with feeder animals. You know, we're going to use our, that's why we have that feed is it's an insurance against the cow production. And so we're going to move stuff up and, and start, start taking care of it. The other, um, the other key date that we're always looking for is, um, April 1st. I mean, if you can get to April 1st, it's home free and you're going to have good feed. 
Um, yeah. Cause even if you don't have the feed in the Hills, the irrigation seasons cranking open and you're going to, you're going to grow really good feed up there. And, and in the spring on the irrigated pasture, I've never seen, I've never f- seen a field overstocked in the spring. Yeah. I've seen them overstocked in July, but never yeah. overstocked in April. Yeah. So, I yeah. mean, I think it's just a matter of getting to those, those two dates and managing the time in between are probably the two biggest factors. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. What about you? We, our, our key dates are kind of flexible in some regards. Um, we've set, we've told ourselves that if, if by December 31st, we haven't had any more rain and there's no rain in the forecast, then we'll need to figure out what we're doing because we'll be coming into, to kind of that mid gestation period when, when the sheep's nutritional requirements will start to ramp up. Um, you know, we can kind of limp by on supplementing protein and, and using all the dry feed that we saved right now, but come mid January, they need more nutrition. And so I think the decision, I, I, we haven't, we haven't totally settled on what our action would be yet. I think the options would be to sell sheep, buy more hay, um, or accept that we're going to drop in body condition this year in order to get a lamb crop on the ground. None of those are very attractive options, but, but they're probably, we kind of did what you did with the cows in 2013. We got, we really upgraded our genetics in the sheep by, by strategically calling the lower performing ewes. And um, we don't have as much flex right now because I, you know, I'm, I'm not sure we'd have the numbers of lower performing ewes that we could get rid of at this point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I guess some of the other things we're doing is action-wise is, um, so right now we are um, going through all of our heavy bunches of ewes and we actually got it scheduled the next week to 10 days. We're going to be scanning them and getting rid of anything that's open. That's so this gonna, is your your kind of spring lambing? Uh, yeah, well, so winter, this this would be our lambing. fall lambing. These would be the ones, so we, we lamb and pull the bucks out to stop lambing on December 15th. Oh, okay. But we have our heavy bunches, and in your heavy bunches, you have things that scanned up pregnant but have absorbed the pregnancy. They've sloughed a lamb. They Things happen all the time. Maybe yeah. they had a lamb, and then another you took it as a twin, and so they're in there as a dry. And you can look at them, and you can judge most of that, but um, we, we on a year like this, we want to be 100% and want to make sure that we get rid of everything. So yeah. that that is not going to produce something for us. So I sold a load of coal ewes into Texas um, on Friday, on Saturday, Friday, we loaded it and um, been working on liquidating our coal ewe numbers down and then also going through and we're, like I said, we're going to scan all our, our drop bunches to make sure that they're cleaned up of any dries. We also have our cows, which, um, so our Angus cattle stopped calving January 1, is that right? uh september october november december no so our angus cattle are done calving now and we have a handful of drives from there and then our wagyu calves stop calving on january one okay and so even though we're going to potentially get some more calves we're actually going to bring those in get the vet out put an arm in them and anything that's open we're going to go ahead and get rid of now rather than waiting till say january 15th and that'll you know that equals 25 cows maybe but that 25 cows is one bale of hay every day, you know, for the, that's mouth that, somebody else 
yeah, it's a half an hour, hour of labor. It's just yeah. you add up the cost of those things. And when you get into these drought situations, you have to do everything to clean up all those bottom ends and just yep. clean up anything that's not being super efficient. Uh, well, and just, that may be one of the things we do if, if we don't get rain is, is scan all the U's and, yeah. and get rid of anything that's open. Because like I said, normally we wouldn't scan them. We would right. just go ahead, let them calve out, and then we would gather the dries, and then we'd be sure that there's no calves at calving, and then we'd go ahead and get rid of the cattle, like I said, maybe January 15th, February 1. Yep. But because of the drought year, we're going to go into them now and get rid of them by December 20th, so that way we're not feeding them from December 20th to January 15th. It just saves that months of, of feed and months of work and and it's it's more manual work, but it's less uh, wasted feed cost because the feed is just it's it's valuable. Every every inch of feed you have to keep. So if you had to put a number on the labor impact of this dry fall, has it increased your labor costs? Ah, uh, that's such a fluid question. I yeah, it's hard to answer. Yeah. Um, it and a lot of that is based on daily demand and. You take, you know, on an easy year with a lot of feed, we'd have the same guys we'd be, but we'd be fixing fence or repairing this, or we'd be doing other jobs. So it's not necessarily a, it's more just a change in priorities of work than it is a additional cost of labor. Yeah. I don't know if that answers your question, but. Yeah. Yeah, it does. It does. I think our situation is a little different in that, that it's just us, you know, it's yeah. not hired labor it does change the amount of time it takes to do the daily work of taking care of the sheep to some extent. Yeah. Um, but it, it's not something I could put a dollar figure on necessarily. I don't think. So what, yeah. what's some of the actions that you're taking? So I, I mentioned we're feeding hay um, every other day right now. Um, we're, we do a lot of, of kind of grazed, grazing planning based on previous year's experience on this particular um, area that we graze in the winter time. And so we've kind of got a sense of how many sheep days per acre we're going to be able to harvest in, in the next 30 days. Um, and we kind of mapped out where that'll put us, you know, come mid January. Once we hit mid January, we're in, in late gestation. And so we always see the forage demand go up. Same number of sheep will will cover cover ground almost twice as fast um, as they will this time of year. And so um, we're kind of looking at, at what we'll have ahead of us come January fifteenth. Um, what it does for us because of the way we move fences is that that. You know, a paddock in a normal year that would last us five days in a dry year might only last three days. And so over the course of a month, we're building fence half again as many times as we would in a normal year. So it just adds to the time that it takes to kind of keep feed in front of the sheep. Um, I will say last year with our dry February, it was, you know, as we started lambing at the end of February, it was great lambing weather. Um, had very little hypothermia or any any kind of wetness issues with with lambing, um, but 
it, it makes you pretty nervous about the future of the forage. So that if you could schedule it, what would you, how would you schedule it? <laughs> Perfect year. Yeah. Uh, let's see. We'd have rain on October 7th, which would mean that by the time we had finished our last pass on irrigated pasture, we had green forage on our rangeland. And then we'd have, you know, through the, through October, November, December, we'd have rain about every seven to 10 days um, through January. February 15th, it would turn crystal clear and dry and be dry, um, except for maybe some nice daytime rain showers with no wind in February and March. And then it can start raining like a Dickens in, in April again and grow feed till, till the first of June. What would a perfect year for you be? Uh, similar start. Uh, I'd probably start the rain. Well, I'll get one good rainstorm there first of October, and then no rain till we're done lambing in November. <laughs> and then November, some good rains uh, into into December. And then I really do like a good dry, cold uh, January, February. I think a gold, a cold, dry January, February really helps kind of cap the cap the soil moisture in the ground. Um, it hardens, you know, you, you burn off a little bit of that feed and it forces the roots to get a little deeper and pull a little more nutrients in, you know, trains that roots to be a little stronger, stronger plant. And then right when you get, you know, first of March, then cut loose and start growing some real good feed when the days start getting longer. That'd be perfect. And I would say that happens over the last 10 years. That's happened three to four years. Would I that? would say, yeah, probably, probably I mean, similar. Not perfect, but close, you know, I was, yeah, I would say close to average. I was telling somebody this morning, I can't remember which year it was, may have been 2016. We had early start. We had lots of grass coming in October. We had a warm, beautiful November rain kind of at the right time, warm temperatures. We had a huge amount of forage growth, more, more grass than I've ever seen in November. And the next lambing season, we pulled more lambs than we've ever had to pull. <laughs> um, so, you know, I guess be careful what I wish for too. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, you're going to get, it's a hedge and yep. you got to just work with what you got. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Just one last question for you. Any, any, you've already touched on some of this, um, but do you think, let me put it this way. Is having sheep on your ground part of your drought strategy? Absolutely. And it's also part of our strategy against the opposite of drought. Okay. Um, in our hills, we have a lot of adobe clay. And if you get a really wet year, the cattle go to heck because they just can't, they, they, they can't handle the wet, the wet dirt. And so you have to make sure you don't overstock your pastures with cattle in our area. And so if we only had cattle, we'd probably have the same number of cattle that we have today. Um, and so basically running these sheep is being able to harvest the fields and maintain the pastures properly. Um, because if we didn't have them, we would be under utilizing them. Right. And we'd probably lose a lot of our, um, we would lose a lot of our broadleafs and biodiversity within the field. Yep. And it would, slowly become more monolithic grasslands. 
And, yeah. um, and I, so it is definitely part of both. It's an overall strategy. Um, but yeah, I'd say it's, and, and it's probably more centered on the worry about a wet spring than it is right. a dry fall. So if it stays dry, will you have a different strategy in the cattle than you will in the sheep for dealing with it? Uh, not, well, no, not really. I mean, this, I, I think the only thing you would do is destock the cattle a little bit more okay, and then slowly build back into them. Okay. Um, rather, and the sheep would stay fairly, uh, well, they're going to be down from where they're at. I bought a lot of sheep this fall, which yeah. might have not been the smartest idea, but it was a fun, <laughs> it was a fun project. <laughs> it looked great on paper. Um, but yeah, so I, yeah, I think cause the sheep, cause like I said, with the sheep, you're able to, you're able to just handle the drought so much better when you have sheep and you still need to do the same principles. You need to destock you know, as much as it pains you to sell something you don't want to sell. You still need to just, you need to do it Yeah. and you still need to supplement some, you know, base nutrition need or, you know, substitute some base nutrition need when you're in a drought, you have to do those things, but you don't have to haul as much water. You don't have to feed as much feed. You don't have to do a lot of those things that you just have to do times 10 on a cow. Was the 2013 drought kind of your first, first run through drought as a yeah, manager? I think so. Yeah. I started in 06 and um, had, we had some really good years there leading up to it. And then, um, then we started getting hit with those droughts there in, yeah. in 2010. 10, 12, 13. It seems like, you know, the things run in what, 10, seven to 10 year cycles or something like that. It seems yeah. like we're kind of at the, whatever you call it. I'm hoping we're at the back end of one of these dry cycles and going to roll into a wet cycle like we saw 2000 through. I mean, I don't know what the, or even a around. normal cycle would be whatever normal is. No right? chance of normal. 3% <laughs> chance of normal. That's all you get. 3% chance of normal. One last question for you. What was the hardest thing? What's the hardest thing you've had to do during a drought? The thing that sticks with you? Uh, push the guys so hard feeding hay everywhere and seeing the condition drop on the livestock. I think you put in all that work and then you see them not doing as well, not thriving. And it, that, that that's very difficult. Um, and then it's hard to sell stuff. It's very hard yeah. to sell productive animals. And that's, that's kind of the, that's the heart of the organization is the, the productive animals. And when you have to sell them, it, it, it's not, it's not fun. Yeah. I think that would be the hardest thing for me. I, I actually remember the day we sorted off the use we were going to sell in January of 2014. And I, this is hard to explain to a non-livestock person but I suspect it's true no matter what scale you're operating at, that, that the genetic composition of your cow herd or your ewe flock is kind of your body of work as a stockman. It's kind of what you've invested your whole life in, in building a set of animals that fit your piece of country and your operation. And to have to sell some of that body of work out of necessity is, was a really hard thing for me. Unloading those ewes at Escalon was probably the hardest day I've had in the livestock business. Yeah, and I think I think too it's hard when you have to sell them into a, a poor yep. market or something like that. So like when we had that 
drought in 13 or something like that. I, I, we sold the cows, but we sold the coals and the cows that we sorted off, but we sold them into a phenomenal market. Right. And right. so it wasn't that bad of a deal. But like right now, if you're going to sell cows, I mean, gosh, the coal market's in the tank. It's not yeah. very good at all. If you're going to sell ewes, it's not bad. It's probably a, actually a pretty decent coal market. Um, but yeah, if you when if you have to sell cows this year, it's not going to be fun because no. you're going to take something that's, you know, it takes... And then when you look at the productive value of it, so you take a you take a cow or a ewe. Well, it's the sheep stuff you should know, so I'll keep it sheep. <laughs> so you take a ewe that um, say is a good solid running age ewe that has produced um, just say a single. It's a poorer producing ewe than a twinner, but say it's producing a single and it's um, it's on its second lamb. So it's got it's going to raise you three more lambs over the next couple years, and it's going to shear you know, 40 to $50 worth of wool, dependent on the market and all that stuff. So you got 150 more dollars worth of wool plus another, um, $600 of, of lamb meat. So you got another $750 worth of income that's coming in over the next three years off of that you, and you're going to have to sell that for a hundred dollars or something like that. And so you're giving away so much opportunity that it, bothers you you know you don't yeah. want to do it you want to figure out a way and that's kind of how you can back off and justify some of the hay hay um, costs because you can look at that long-term productivity and yep. um, afford to put that hay into it and that's also why i think it's so important to get aggressive on getting those that's why we're going through and scanning everything and getting rid of anything that's not um, yep. producing because if we if we're taking that money in the hay and we're dropping it into a coal U that's not going to be sold for any, you know, that's not going to be returning value to the organization over the next two, three years. That's money out the door. Whereas right. if, if you right. can take that expense and drop it into your good, strong, productive part, your heart or your herd, that's worth something. That's, that's, that's probably the most important point to be made today uh, is to spend the time to do that, that kind of analysis. It gets back to knowing your animals too. Yep. Knowing yeah. what and you knowing your economics. Where... Yeah, both, definitely. But they yeah. go hand in hand, I think. Yeah. I've always felt that the economics, the well-being, yeah, we said it a bunch of times, but the economic well-being of your operation is directly tied to the well-being of your animals. Absolutely. It's, you, the the Absolutely. better your animals are, you will be economically, you know, viable. Yep. If you're not taking care of your animals, then you're not going to be making money. Yeah, uh, you can make money. You can make variables. money on trades or things like that, but you're not really a livestock man if you're doing that. And that's yeah. only that's only going to last you so long till you get caught and burned. Yep. yep. You only speed so long till that CHP catches you. <laughs> oh, this has been really good. This has been a really. I think this is a a good one to go out on, take a little break. But uh, this has been a. I've as always learned a lot. Thank you. Yeah, it was good. So, um, so we're breaking till I guess the next one that we'll be releasing will be the first week in February. Uh, we may come out of, you know, come out of our, uh, our, our, uh, hermitage <laughs> to, to do a, do a ASI broadcast or something. But, um, but yeah, this has been a great year and, and it's been a lot of fun. What, uh, over the last, 34 episodes what do you what do you think your favorite one has been or kind of do you have any favorite moments or anything like that you know i it's hard to hard to count them all i really learned a lot um talking about kind of the business principles 
I, I found those to be really valuable to me in thinking about how we operate our business. I, you know, hearing your grandpa and hearing Fred yeah. Groverman kind of relate their life's worth of experiences in the sheep business, um, I thought was, was really outstanding. Um, I, you know, I, I, I also really liked the one where we talked about risk um, because I, I think that's a, a more complex topic than most people realize. And I, I, I still go back to that one and, and think about that one a lot. How about you? What were some of the highlights for you? Uh, I mean, the interview with my grandpa and Fred Grove, I mean, those are just, especially with my grandpa, it's my grandpa. So yeah, it's, it's yeah. one that I'll cherish forever. But then, uh, the, uh, yeah, I, I really like the, I like the pasture ones. Uh, those are really good for me. That's, I think that's one of my weakest places and, um, being able to talk about that kind of stuff and re re listen to some of the points you made been really good. Um, I really enjoyed, uh, I've enjoyed the, our conversation with Dr. Saitone yeah. on, what to do at the beginning of the bankruptcy and all that stuff. And then now that things have happened, it's really fun to go, I, to, to reconsider some of those things and, and the warning signs that she put up and, and, um, it's pretty, pretty fascinating how that conversation has played out and how yeah. some of the things that she said were kind of right. Some of them, some of the warnings we're doing and it's going to be really interesting to see all that plays out because it it's uh that has some huge implications for all the sheep producers in the u.s and it's going to be really interesting to see how these next two three years really pan out yeah because um, there's a lot of opportunity but man there's a lot of risk in it too so yeah there is there is and i you know i think looking forward at what we hope to to do next spring i think having um having kurt on and, and kind of internationalizing our podcast a little bit was really fun for me. And I, I hope we can do some more of that. Um, reach out beyond, beyond the U S cause I think there's always more to learn from, mm -hmm. from how other folks are doing it. Yeah. I like that. And I mean, we'll get the, we'll get a list of topics together. If anybody has any ideas for topics they want to hear about next, next year, just, uh, email or email direct message. <laughs> Dan Macon at Fly Mule or message me at California Sheep Rancher on the Instagram and we'll go ahead and get get uh, get it on the get it on the ideas list and and uh, I'm I'm excited I think it's amazing we talked a whole year about sheep and I think we got plenty to talk about next year so uh, <laughs> I'm looking forward to it and uh, yeah gosh it's been fun and and pretty excited and and uh, yeah you have a good Christmas you too what's on what's on the Christmas dinner table at, at uh, your house. Oh, well, I'm going to make a little, I think we'll do a, like a shepherd's pie for a side dish. Cause I can't have Christmas dinner and not have lamb. But, uh, my, my, my mom went out and she bought a, uh, or got a, uh, snake river farms, prime rib roast. Oh, Cause that's, nice. we, we, uh, we raise them. And nice. so we, and we sell them to snake river and, and we're always excited to, to see the product back on our plate. And it's so delicious. <laughs> oh, that sounds really good. Yeah. How about you guys? Really good. We haven't totally decided. Our our oldest daughter, Lara, informed us um, that when she comes home from Montana, she'd like California lamb. So we'll we'll do something lamb wise. I made a um, a recipe just to experiment that the lamb board put out 
It was braised lamb shoulder, beer braised lamb shoulder. Oh, wow. It was amazing. So I might do that with a light, with a, a bone in leg just to experiment. That'd be cool. And that's on the American Lamb Board site? Yeah. 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 Well, that'd it was be really that'd be worth a Google. To, to make and really good. Yeah. Awesome. And you only use half of the beer, so you have to drink the other half of the beer. It <laughs> works out even better. Exactly. <laughs> make sure you use a good beer. <laughs> All right, Dan. All well, right. Thank, thanks again. And uh, here's to wrapping up season one. This is Sheep Stuff You Should Know and signing off from Rio Vista, California. I'm Ryan Mahoney. Dan Macon up in Auburn, California. And, and I want to shout out to John Kidwell, who's uh, become our producer extraordinaire and, and sound man and everything else. So yeah. behind the scenes, John makes it all happen. Thank you, John. Big, big thank you to John Kidwell. And um, also, I'd like to send out a thank you to Dr. Rosie Bush, who joined us for an episode, Dr. Tina Satone. Um, my grandpa Dick Gamey and um, Kurt Portis from Palisar Ridge and Fred Groverman all for joining us over the last 30 or so episodes so we look forward to next year adding a few more personalities to the list and oh and Joe Fisher and Jeff Clark Jeff Clark yeah so both Absolutely. of those guys were on too so we look look forward to kind of continuing what we're doing and and sure been a lot of fun and uh, we'll see y'all in February Merry Christmas Merry Christmas Happy New Year bye Bye. Wahoo, we're done. Wahoo, we're done. Wahoo, 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 we're done. Wahoo, we're done. Wahoo, we're done. We're done. We're done.